Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast about children's mental health and emotional well-being. I'm Dr. Leah Gagino, a primary care pediatrician, and I created this podcast for the pediatric medical community and anyone who cares about children's behavioral health. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Hey listeners, welcome back to another episode of Pediatric Meltdown. I am so excited to bring two guests to you today to talk about birthing's perspectives in the Latinx community. I think it's an opportunity for us to step out of our white-centric visions of birthing and the prenatal and postpartum period and think about other cultures and really begin to transform our concepts of what it means to have a baby in our culture. I want to, first of all, welcome back the lovely Christina Ledlow. Christina holds certifications as a childbirth educator, is a birth doula, and postpartum doula in Kalamazoo, Michigan. She also works for the OB-GYN-PC as their patient educator and teaches classes for Bronson Methodist Hospital. She is a perinatal emotional support coordinator and works with mothers in the postpartum period, screening for risk factors for postpartum and perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. Dr. Karen Garcia is a board-certified pediatrician practicing in the Bronson Hospital System in Kalamazoo as a newborn hospitalist. She has had an interest in medicine and the human body since she was a small child growing up in Miami. Her father is originally from Colombia, and her mother emigrated from Nicaragua. And growing up, she was exposed to the cultural richness of both Central and South America. Dr. Garcia went to medical school at Lee Com in Bradenton, Florida, and then completed her residency at Michigan State University Kalamazoo Center for Medical Studies in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Go my alma mater. She fell in love with the community and the pace of life and has remained in the community since 2008. On her off time, Dr. Garcia loves to read, cook, and spend time with her family. She also donates her time with her family to local organizations that fund and provide services for minority and underprivileged groups. Please join me in welcoming Christina Ledlow and Karen Garcia. Hey, Karen. Hey, Christina. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm so excited to have you guys today. How are you? Good. Good. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah. Well, I've been exploring a little bit about kind of mothers and the podcast is really dedicated to children's emotional health and well-being. But, you know, so much of that is dependent on the health and wellness of the mom. And so what a better place to start than with prenatal care and birthing and all the things. So I wanted to think a little bit about when we think of birthing and prenatal care, so much of it is from the white perspective. And I really hadn't even thought about it until I think Christina was the one that said, hey, we could do a podcast on Latina moms. And so I, prior to this recording with Erica Goodhouse from the um, African-American community. So I really wanted to have you guys give us another perspective as we talk about women from all kinds of walks of life. So let's just start with kind of the roles you play. You're both in the newborn nursery and how you guys work together, how you know each other. Okay, I'll go ahead and start. I'm Christina, and I am the perinatal emotional support coordinator up on Bronson Kalamazoo's 
mother baby floor. And I am a Mexican American woman. I identify as Latina and Chicana. Um, and I get to work with the um, moms and the babies. And so therefore I get the pleasure of working with Karen. So I will let you introduce yourself now, Karen. So my name is Dr. Karen Garcia and I'm actually a newborn hospitalist. So a pediatrician that primarily works with just newborns. And I'm currently working in both Bronson Methodist and Kalamazoo and Bronson Battle Creek, which are about um, 30 miles away from each other in the newborn nursery, supporting our moms, taking care of our babies, and trying to coordinate the transition from the hospital back to their pediatrician or their primary care physicians once they get discharged. My father is Colombian. My mother is Nicaraguan. I grew up in Miami, so I have a very blended cultural Latinx identity from all of the influences that I had growing up. I think one of the things about doing this podcast is finding out really interesting things about people. I mean, it's not like I would have walked up to you and said, hey, where are you from? Tell me about you, you know, but <laughs> I get to do that on the podcast. So as I've said before, this is my social life in a four by four closet. So, <laughs> so thank you for being my friends. Well, <laughs> let, let's explore this, this idea of how birthing is is viewed. Because again, we were talking before the recording started. I'm really not sure how I classify myself. I used to put Caucasian and then I thought, well, I'm not really, I'm kind of a, a blend. My mom is Texan, which for her is, you know, Irish American wasp. And my dad is from Singapore. So he is Asian, Asian, Eurasian. So, you know, but again, I guess I never thought of my experience being anything different than, quote, normal. And I don't know that normal is really the same for everybody. And talking with Erica about the experiences of Black women, that it's not easy. It's not always easy to navigate the system. And the system doesn't necessarily include their viewpoint or culture. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the Hispanic culture and, and what that looks like. So when you're thinking about prenatal care or birthing or that hospital experience, and maybe even a little into the postpartum, because I know, Christina, you do some of that work too. What do you think about that experience for Latinx moms? Christina, we'll start with you. I think it's in, it can be incredibly difficult. And I think right now I was talking a little bit to Karen about this last night. This is not a general overview of all of the Latinx families because we're all, we all come from, from different places. But if we're kind of talking about maybe that like first generation, um, I think is, is kind of what, what I'll sort of uh, hone in on. I think it's difficult. Latinx families are generally raised with the expectation that La Familia, the family is this number one. So in our roles, it's really important, I feel like, for us to help these Latinx families, especially these mothers, to have confidence in finding their own way as parents, as new mothers, while also being able to honor their um, cultural and also family expectations. Mm -hmm. So that's where I think I would start because we are a very white-centric culture when we go to the doctor or when we go to deliver. And so we, we need to to be more conscious of that so that we can help also honor that cultural and family expectation of the Latinx culture. Well, and I think you just made me think, you know, a lot of families that are first generation, often the parents live with the family or they're very big extended families that live together. And I remember just being like surprised at that, like, 
how on earth does that work? Now I have a new concept because my parents live with me. So it's come full circle, but you know, it is a different experience. And if you are not from that culture, it sort of feels, you know, literally foreign to you. So what what do you think, Karen? Absolutely. I mean, I have to echo what Christina says that it it drastically changes even between those first generation and the second generation. And for me in particular, being that second generation, that pull for two completely different cultures, the culture that you grew up seeing and, and saw your mom growing up and becoming a mother in the kind of support that she has and the expectations that I had as being second generation, professional working woman, in the United States as an American woman and and how that clashes at times. And so I think I think it is very difficult and especially as you start navigating that transition. Some of our families come over to the United States with their extended families. I've had some of my mothers um, especially with the migrant populations that they're up here by themselves with just their husband, potentially their other children and that's it and so they're they're completely removed from that extensive family support that they otherwise would have anticipated being there in those transitions. So it's, it's fascinating and amazing all of the different dynamics that really do affect our, our Latinx mothers. Well, and then you throw COVID in there when people come to the hospital and they couldn't have anybody with them, right? Maybe their spouse, if they were lucky, depending on your hospital system. So, you know, walk me through a little bit, you know, what that experience might be as a Latinx mom. And again, I don't want to just like throw it all together, like all Latinx moms are the same, because as you said, Christina, you come from all different walks of life and it's not just one big catch all, you know, but in terms of sort of a general cultural overlay, maybe, you know, what might that experience be from, from the prenatal, because you're a doula also, from that prenatal experience, maybe in the hospital, because that's where you guys really touch a lot of moms. What, what would you say that journey might look like? I think, you know, one of the things if we're talking about prenatal is making sure that they are, you know, they are mamas, our families are have access to all of the care that they need. And sometimes that can be a barrier as well because of, you know, like Karen said, when you're talking about we have some migrant families that lack access to care that we need to help with finding ways to get them where they need. I think making sure that they have good access to care, making sure that when they are in the hospital, they are being supported and cared for and allowed to be vulnerable and feel heard and seen, even if they're with providers, and I know we'll probably get into that later, that don't look like them or um, necessarily understand their culture. I think also, especially for our first time moms, making, you know, we were talking about family and that, that culture barrier of, you know, it being number one and helping to these Latinx moms to find their bearings and um, helping them realize that they are capable. And I think helping them to learn the importance of self-care too, when they go home, a lot of times we seem to see a hierarchy of masculine structure within the Latinx families. So sometimes then I feel like the females needs kind of get dismissed. So after the baby's born, you know, trying to help them to realize that expectations don't have to be all on them. They don't have to take everything on to allow people and to help educate the entire family on how to help moms. 
Absolutely. One of the other things that I think I'd add on as well is we have to be very mindful as providers in particular when we're providing prenatal labor management, postpartum care, is that there tends to be very big power dynamics in play. There's a lot of deference to the medical community and medical providers. And so you sometimes will see families that'll just nod and say, yep, okay, not question, not really feel comfortable asking further questions or clarifying questions even, because at the end of the day, culturally, when you go to the doctor's office, that's the specialist. You're not supposed to second guess them. And so it's really, really important that you close that loop back with those families and say, okay, now let's talk about what we just spoke about. Did you understand what we were talking about insofar as the care for your baby? Did you understand what it was that we were talking about, about trying to control your pain? Do you, do you understand what it is that we need to do in order to do X, Y, Z thing for your baby? So always being mindful that, that there is a power play, that even if you are not walking into that room necessarily flexing that, that that still does play a role in a lot of our families. Absolutely. That's a really good point and a, you know, sort of a, aha moment is, you know, this, this power about who has it, right? And we don't often think that, you know, we just, you know, you just go about doing your business. And I guess the other thing, maybe sort of moving into that provider piece, you know, a lot of, I mean, it depends on where you are, but oftentimes your um, OB, your nurse practitioner may be white. And there may be things that they're might say or do that can be harmful and they don't really even know that. Do you ever see that happen? Unfortunately. And, and I don't think that it's ever, it ever comes from a place of malice or, you know, ill intent, but as providers, whether you are Latinx or, or not, I think what Karen said, I, I echo that, like you have to be really cognizant of that. And one of the things I think with any mom, especially with um, mothers of color is to not hover over the bed or over like to, to stand back, to pull up a chair, to be on a patient's level, period, no matter what. But I think that's incredibly important too for our Latinx families and our families of color so that you, you don't automatically feel that, that power, at least physically you feel safe and comfortable. Back to what you said, yes. And so I think one of the, the biggest things that we can do is if you are a provider or a clinician and you are not bicultural or bilingual, when you ask questions, ask from a place of curiosity and, you know, so that it's not, it doesn't come off as, you know, assumptions or, you know, just like, like Karen said, like that, that power is always at play. So asking from a place of, you know, curiosity and also leading with empathy. Yeah. Because I think, especially when you're asking some of these questions that potentially they've been shamed about before. So even speaking about multi, um, multi-generational families, Myself, I would have never, ever in my entire life had thought that my annoying little sister would be living with us <laughs> in my basement because she came back actually from South Korea after I had my, my older son, Christopher, and I very promptly got accidentally pregnant again and had a horrible hyperemesis gravidum, needing IV infusions multiple times a week. And so the time frame that she was supposed to move out, she she was 
she was here helping support me, helping with my, my, my older son, getting me through the subsequent pregnancy. And it's still embarrassing sometimes when people ask me, you know, who lives in your house? And it's like, okay, how do I explain this? So but if we come to it from a position of curiosity of, okay, I want to make sure that I help support you. So I want to make sure that I understand what your household looks like. So that way I can better give you advice for X, Y, Z things. So I definitely think that coming from that place of curiosity is so much more opening and welcoming than, than potentially coming from a place where, where the patient themselves can feel like they're going to be judged. Not because that's your intent, but that that's because how the impact is on that person. This is a very interesting theme that has come up in, I can't tell you how many podcasts, especially when I've done them with parents about what, what would you want to tell physicians to how they could do better and, and, you know, meet you, meet your needs. And one of the big ones is sit down. And it's kind of one of those things. I mean, the bar is low. I mean, hello, you could just sit down. And I had never thought about it though, Christina, the way you described it is that hovering tap, you know, it is a power position. I mean, I think Wonder Woman, you know, hands on her hips, you know, that it's, it is a power position and, but also about not making assumptions. And Erica talked about that, that for a mom with Medicaid, that there are suddenly many assumptions made about who she is just based on her insurance. And she said, you will be treated differently all of the time, 100% of the time, when you say you have Medicaid versus private insurance. I mean, that was her, her experience and perspective. And, you know, we see lots of families that have Medicaid insurance. I mean, almost 50% of kids are covered by Medicaid. So I think we have to be mindful of that. My viewpoint on that is we should all just have Medicaid. <laughs> we should all have the same health insurance and that would level the playing field. Absolutely. Yes. But, but I like what you said also about, you know, preconceived notions about what your family is. You know, maybe, maybe you're a, a same-sex couple. Maybe your mother lives with you and provides all your care. You know, who, who knows without asking and then again, being okay with whatever is shared that you're like, huh, tell me, I like that. Tell me more. I think that's a, that's a really good phrase. Well, you know, again, this sort of gets down to inequities and disparities in care. When people are coming into the system, have you seen those other sort of inequities where providers could do a better job? Yeah, I mean, I think we can all always do a better job as humans, right? Like we we can always do a better job. But I think um, that if we are validating to our patients, if we validate their stories and we come from a place of curiosity and empathy, that's a really good starting point. Yeah. We have a lot of education to do, but that's a really great starting point. Yeah, and just being humble about recognizing that we don't know what we don't know. Yes. And understanding that it's okay not to know. It's okay not to be sure what their cultural beliefs and backgrounds are. So come from a place of curiosity and ask them so that you can better support them. 
and understand that sometimes your intent can be coming from the best of places with the best of intentions and still cause absolutely traumatizing impact, especially when you're dealing with a BIPOC population. Yeah, that that whole words matter. And, you know, the American Academy of Pediatrics, um, one of the big priorities this year, in addition to COVID care, which of course had to be on the list and mental health is about equity. And there have been lots of statements coming out about policies for the AAP, but there's a document that came out called Words Matter. And it was really directed to particularly people who are writing policy about, think about the language that you're using, because, you know, we just make assumptions all the time about, and and it's not that we're, like you said, Christina, it's not intentional malice. It's just, I'm not sure quite the word, but it's just this, you know, sort of egocentric, like, well, you must be like me, or you're really not like me. And, you know, and then I'm going to treat you differently. I think that that overt kind of, I think as someone on a podcast mentioned, sort of that macroaggression is less common, but there's all these things that we say and do that we just don't even recognize. And, you know, I think in my head, as I've been having these conversations, like, I am sure that I did a lot of things that were not my best self. And I, but I didn't know, but that's not an excuse. It's not an excuse. Then you have to figure out how to know better. So anything more about that? I've heard a lot of words like curiosity, don't make assumptions, lead with empathy, validate stories, be humble, Those are probably not necessarily traits that are listed when you're applying to medical school. (laughs) What what would you say to that, Karen? (laughs) You know, it's really funny because I, in doing a lot of the work that I'm doing for myself and with the hospital for racial equity, I keep going back to my honors thesis at the University of South Florida. And one of the things that I was looking at was what are those qualitative personality traits that you're looking for when you're interviewing candidates for medical school and residency. And at the time, I remember one of the deans of, of the medical school was like, huh, that's interesting. I wonder, I wonder what it is that people would actually be looking for. But, but none of these things that we're talking about now were the things that most of the medical schools and, and the residency directors that I spoke to at the moment were saying they were looking for insofar as personality traits. So it, it just, absolutely, I think it's definitely something to work on. Yeah. Would, did you have any experiences as a medical student or a resident that you felt like could have gone differently or where you felt shamed or kind of exposed when you didn't expect it? Yeah. I mean, I think there were lots of different situations that were triggering without other people knowing one of them. And I mean, it was, it was comical, but at the same time, very much so triggering for me was actually during residency. I historically have always tried to speak English as properly without an accent as possible. And this is since kindergarten. And I know I've shared the story in a couple different circles, but essentially I remember the very first time I was speaking in front of the classroom in kindergarten and everyone, you know, was supposed to say where, where they lived, where they were born. And 
I, I remember saying, you know, I'm Karen and I was born in Miami and the entire class burst into laughter. And I was told that's not how you pronounce Miami. It's pronounced Miami. People that don't speak English pronounce it Miami. And it seems so silly now, but that was one of the biggest triggers for me to say, I, if I'm going to assimilate, if I'm going to grow up here in the United States, I can't speak with an accent. Mm. So fast forward 20 some odd years and I'm in residency and one of the Proscani evaluations came back and said that it's very difficult to understand Dr. Garcia because she's got a thick accent. And so I laughed and my colleagues all burst into laughter and they're like, there's no way. Like I said, it seems so silly, but it's those triggers of those subconscious things that, that you've grown up doing, especially being a second generation American, where I was told, even by my parents, assimilation is what you need to do in order to be successful here in the United States. Um, we actually had a family, a little mini family reunion at the beginning of the summer. And it was my sister, my brother, and then a very close family friend who's Colombian as well. And that was actually one of the things that came up was, what was that word that made you realize yeah, everyone had different words. And it's just, it's amazing that we all could go back and remember that from elementary school of, of that moment of, ooh, okay, that's not how I pronounce it here in school. I'm not supposed to say that in front of in front of other people, only at home. Oh, it's so hard. You know, I can't be who I am. Yep. Yeah. And I was saying earlier too, you know, Brene Brown has a whole thing on belonging. And, you know, if you are quote, different, you know, what do you have to do to belong? And so such a hard journey. And we didn't even talk about when there are language barriers. And, you know, you have to, you know, bring in a, an interpreter, which is can slow things down. But, you know, and I can speak some Spanish, and I like to practice my Spanish with families. But when I have an interpreter, sometimes I'll go ahead and do that and then have the interpret, interpreter make sure that I'm getting it right both ways. But I realized how much I would be missing if I was just relying on what I thought I knew. <laughs> I think my Spanish is about like at a five-year-old level. So, <laughs> well, listen, you know, just as far as this, I think awareness, nothing else that listeners get from this is an awareness that everybody brings their own experiences to the table and they're not necessarily like yours and that we need to be accepting of that and meet people where they are. I think being curious, I mean, I think about some of my Arabic families and some of the children have come in. One in particular, I remember, or maybe it was an Indian family. I'm sorry if I'm mixing it up, but had the head was shaved and the baby had coal on their eyes. And I remember asking, like, tell me about that. You know, I'm, I'm curious about that. And I'm hoping that was okay because I was interested about, you know, what, what that meant for them because, you know, it was, was different. So I hope I did that all right. <laughs> well, yeah, absolutely. And most families will pick up when you're coming from a place of curiosity as opposed to judgment. Well, and I think, again, you know, just being mindful of the words that we say. And I think it does feel, I think that there is some resentment, like, why do I have to do things differently? Like I treat everybody the same. And I think that that has become a huge 
statement that we haven't recognized is so off-putting is probably like a nice word for that, you know, because we're not all the same. And I, I was kind of thinking about it in terms of if we had a child with disabilities and I said, well, I'm not going to really recognize the fact that you are, you can't walk because I treat everybody the same. And I'm going to give you the same care I would give any child that is, can run, climb. So, and I kind of, at that point, I was like, huh, I wonder if that perspective is one that we hadn't even thought of. Like we would just never do that, right? It's true. Absolutely. It's equality. Yep. Mm-hmm. And it's detrimental to health. I mean, right. we've seen over and over and over again how when you're treating everyone equally as opposed to providing what it is each individual patient, each, in, each individual family needs, mm-hmm. it's detrimental to health. And I think sometimes people might feel like, well, that's just too much work. That's too uh-huh. hard. How am I supposed to, <laughs> how am I supposed to know, you know, what you need when I think I know what you need, <laughs> you know? And so what is the advice that you would give to someone that would say that? It is hard. It does take time, but you have to take the time. You have to put the effort in if you really want to provide the best of care for your patients and for your families. Don't do this if you don't want to, if you, this is nobody's making you do this. I think just like you said, it is hard, but we, we can do this. And I think doing one of the things too, if we going back to like working with Latinx cultures and women of color is when it comes to getting things done, helping too. Hey, did you get on this app that helps you with like your breastfeeding, you know, tracking breastfeeding? Let me actually show you how to sign that up. We can do that right while I'm here. Like, let's try and make things easier so that when we're saying here, we'd like for you to do this, let's help them get it done right then. Then you've, you know, helps them do it. They feel empowered. You feel great that they've got that done. So I think making sure that you're available to help with those little things is really important too. Hey, I, I'm not better than being able to sit here and help you load an app on your phone or get this, you know, situation resolved. It just is another way to break down the status that, you know, Karen was talking about too, of feeling like, well, you're, you're better than me and I have to do, you know, no, I'm going to help you do this. We're going to do this together. Well, and I think making an, not making the assumption that one, that you have a phone that has apps or that you have Wi-Fi to be able to use them, but you're asking, would this tool be helpful to you? And if it would, let's just make sure that it makes sense to you how to do that. Right. Because I think that there are those, you know, we call them social determinants of health. We make assumptions when somebody lives in a larger body, we assume that they're just being lazy or they're feeding their kids bad food. And we don't even think about sometimes those foods that are less nutritious are way cheaper. And, you know, so I got to feed my kids something. And if we make that assumption, you know, we're missing the boat and we're not really getting to what people need. So that's a great suggestion. Well, that kind of brings me to what are some of the resources that I, as a clinician could use to do better? The the first thing is, and and I'm going to kind of go back to your example of, you know, having having a little bit of limited Spanish, is we have to have interpreters available. We have to remember that even amongst English-speaking people, the understanding of medical terminology is about 30%. So then when you add in a language barrier on top of that, 
how little do they truly understand when we're talking about medical care and medical management. So having those interpreters available, even if you're not actively talking with them or actively saying every single sentence to them, knowing that you can use them either for the family to turn around and be like, wait a minute, what was that word? Or I didn't quite understand all of that. Or to ask, you know, can you, can you make sure that, that they understood X, Y, Z thing that I just said? It's incredibly important to make sure that that we are communicating because medical jargon, medical terminology is is almost a completely different language in and of, in and of itself. Totally different language, and we slide into it all the time. And, and again, we're not trying to be mean or rude or exclusive. It's just a language that we speak amongst each other. In fact, don't you have that experience? Somebody comes in and the minute they said, like your term, you had used hyperemesis gravidum. If you had yeah. said, God, I have, I'm having such bad hyperemesis. The minute you'd say that, I'd be like, are you a doctor or a nurse? Mm -hmm. Because who else would know that term? I mean, it's just not a common term that means throwing up, <laughs> right? So yeah. we, we do slide into that without even thinking about it. So that's a really okay. important point. Christina, were you going to say something about, you know, oh, how to... I, I, I echo that, absolutely. And, and all of your free time as providers, because I know you have so much, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, wherever you can, there is such value in picking up a book and reading more. And it doesn't have to be necessarily about you know, cultural sensitivity, but even a book that's outside of your realm of this is a book written by a Latinx author, or this is a book written by, you know, Black author or whatever, like all of this just gives you, it makes you more um, aware. It gives you a window into a different culture. So I think even things like that, it can be something that is fiction, but it's still going to give you a window into the culture. So, you know, because I know of all of your spare time that you have, and obviously, any kind of cultural competency or implicit bias training, all of those things are so worth it. You will not be wasting your time. And I know time is precious, but boy, that that's just going to add tenfold to the kind of provider and people that we are. Do you have a favorite book, fiction, nonfiction? So one of my favorite books is The House on Mango Street by Sandra Cisneros. It's um. <laughs> It's an, it's an old one, but I love it. I love it so much. I've loved it since I was in college, but that's one of my favorites. How about you, Karen? So I'm not going to specifically say books, but two of my favorite non-Caucasian authors are Pablo Neruda and Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Mm -hmm. And the poetry of Pablo Neruda are, I mean, one of the most romantic, amazing things to read. And Gabriel Garcia Marquez, who did In the Times of Cholera and A Hundred Years of Solitude, it's just, his writing is just fantastic. And it does, it, it actually, it's a nice window to kind of see what, what life in South America was like. Yeah, I, I think some of my other favorites are, and I can't remember the name of the author, but Like Water for Chocolate, um, oh, yes. which I think I love the sort of the mysticism. And I think that's kind of an interesting piece, but also anything by Isabella Allende. Now she, she's a South American writer and the other is a Mexican writer. So, you know, again, making an assumption that, you know, every Latinx person is the same, you know, they all speak Spanish, right. so it must be the same, right? <laughs> and it's, it's amazing because I mean, people will ask me, they're like, well, what's the difference? Like your mom's side of the family and your dad's side of the family. Oh my gosh. The differences between 
Central America, South America. I've had the benefit of being able to travel to Chile and Argentina. And even, I mean, they're a country away from Colombia, where my dad is from. And even the cultural differences between them is amazing. And I will, I, I will admit, um, the first time in my life that I really had to interact with Mexican culture was actually when I moved to Michigan. And it's, it's very different too. So it, I had to learn a lot as well when I moved up from, from Florida. Right. The food is different. I remember thinking, you know, when I went to Costa Rica, I was, I did some medical work in Ecuador and I was like, what is this food? It is not the same. <laughs> you know, where's the, where's the, the taco, you know, I mean, yeah, you're just no. sort of like Tex-Mex and the yeah, language. You're going to get gallo pinto in, in Costa Rica. <laughs> yeah, totally different. And the language I remember, you know, again, I I've got enough Spanish. I can sort of get by and it's very different because the Spanish I learned, I think is really more like Mexican Spanish. Well, in Cuba, I could, there was different words. I mean, I, it was very difficult in Ecuador though, you know, the words are different. And so if we make the assumption that all Spanish is the same, it's not right. It's not. I think the one thing though, that you'll find that that is the same and that runs through, through and through is the pride, the pride in the culture, the pride in, in the family it's there. And that's why we need to, as professionals continue to honor that. Well, I hope, Karen, that you speak with an accent and use Spanish where you where you can and that you continue to pronounce Miami, Miami. I always think of that song, Welcome to Miami. Which I know. I, and which, it bothered me growing up. I was like, how come Will Smith can have that in the song? <laughs> well, thank you so much. This has been really helpful and so interesting. You know, I think that's the thing that we miss when we're cultural centric is that we miss the fun and the interesting things that are different and celebrate them. Not, you know, I mean, I think a lot of times when we go to other countries, we're not going to find a place that's just like Kalamazoo, right? We want to go to Europe where it's old and they speak a different language. And, you know, we want to step out of our experience and we can do that right at home. You know, we can find those kind of find that what's interesting about other people and what they bring to the table that makes our experiences richer, even if it's sometimes harder. Agreed. So here's my final question. If you could go back and talk to yourself when you were a student in college, a med student resident, what advice would you give yourself? I'll let you go first, Christina. Well, I would have never stopped um, taking Spanish. I, I took the semesters that I was supposed to because it was like, oh, I know the language. I don't, I don't need to keep taking it. And I wish that I would have continued to take it in college, like throughout, so that I could always know like the proper grammar and the proper, because a lot of the Spanish I know is Mexican Spanish or there's Spanglish that's mixed in there because I'm also, you know, I'm from South Texas. So um, there's, there's that. I wish that I would have continued on. My mom has her master's degree in Spanish. So not only is she a native speaker, but she's got that incredible tool of, of also the education. So I would have, I would have told myself, just keep going. Awesome. How about you, Karen? Oh, I, one, I, I would go back and, and tell my younger self, get over it and continue enjoying these Spanish classes that your parents are forcing you to take. <laughs> um, 
Yes. I was very lucky and I ended up um, going through AP Spanish and taking Spanish even in college. It just, I was so annoyed with it at the time without realizing how incredibly beneficial and what an entire separate tool chest I have in my endeavor of, of becoming a doctor. Because at the time, I really didn't see that. But the other big thing that I would remind my younger self is that no is a complete sentence. <gasps> Somebody, oh my goodness, Erica just said that same thing. Yeah, I've never heard that before. Many, yeah, it's taken me this many years to realize it because you, you always feel like you have to explain and you have to apologize. And no, I could have been saying that for years. I love that. I love that. You know, one of the things that you said about taking Spanish, and I'm thinking, here's an assumption. You speak Spanish. Why on earth would you take Spanish classes? But then I'm thinking English speakers. Hello, what do we take from the the get-go? We take English, right? (laughs) Why would would you assume that just because you pursue further education, (laughs) you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, and it's amazing, especially reading and writing it. The proficiency is so much different. And so being able to be a medical interpreter, to be able to interpret some of these documents into a different language is just an incredible, again, tool that I didn't realize I, I would be pulling out constantly. And I have to say, when I've had a medical interpreter join me, oh my gosh, it is the biggest sigh of relief because I want to make sure that they understand what I am saying, the patients, and I want them to know that I understood everything that they said. And it's, it's such a relief and the, the interpreters are so gracious and really help. So that that's a huge gift when healthcare systems can provide that. Well, listen, thank you so much for just being you. You guys are wonderful human beings. You do, you know, really amazing work on behalf of women and in the field of medicine. And, you know, it all makes it better for kids. And I think this idea of healthcare providers that look like you, not, and I can't be anybody different than I am, but I can recognize, appreciate differences in others. But I think it must be reassuring for a lot of Latinx families to have physicians that are Latinx for Black families to have a physician who is Black, or at least access. And we just need to be more intentional about having more and more people join us that are from all different walks of life. Well, thank you again, and keep doing all the great things that you do. I I so appreciate you. I love these conversations that let me take a step out of my own world and see things from a totally different perspective. It is a learning experience for me that sometimes takes me by surprise. You know, you only know what you know, and unless you are able to really step in in someone else's shoes, it's hard to imagine that things aren't the way you think they are. So here are my takeaways. Number one, it is hard to recognize that much of our medical system is white-centric. Christina and Karen talked about the importance of the family in the Latinx community and that having family close by is a cultural norm. For many during COVID, this was especially difficult, and particularly for first-time mothers who may not have had their family surrounding them. For many migrant women, they are far from home, and the absence of family can be really hard. And I think we have to, again, keep in mind what are things like from the other's perspective. Number two, 
Culturally, Latinx families see physicians as powerful and are deferential. Encouraging questions and inquiring about concerns opens the door to assure understanding. Don't assume that because someone didn't ask you a question that they understand. So it's really important to kind of go back and ask, does that all make sense? And Karen outlined that really nicely. Number three, there are many barriers to accessing care. Language barriers, insurance barriers, immigration status, things many of us have never had to think about. Number four, Karen offered the phrase, tell me about who is living in your household, rather than making assumptions. For many second-generation individuals, there is a push-pull between cultures, and fitting in can be difficult. Karen related feeling shame at explaining why her sister lived with her. We are in the business of caring for our families, and shaming has no place. Number five, Christina talked about the patriarchy in Latinx families and how she supports young Latinx mamas to advocate for what they need. She sees her role as helping them to, as she said, find their bearings. Number six, here are many messages to clinicians. A, don't make assumptions or rush to judgment. B, sit down. There is a power play in place when you are hovering over the bed, standing by the door with your hand on the doorknob, and the message comes across that you are in a hurry to get somewhere else. C, be curious. D. Validate stories. There are common themes for many BIPOC women, and being aware of our own defensiveness is really important. I think often we are challenging, like, I didn't mean that or I didn't understand, and we just can't hide behind that anymore. We have to start thinking about how our words are impacting others. E. Again, be curious. And this came across in many, many interviews that I've done. People want you to be interested in them. F, lead with empathy. That is the ability to step into another's shoes and experience what they experience from their perspective. G, be humble. It's okay to not know what you don't know. And just be upfront about that. H, use interpreters. And for me, honestly, that was really important. I used to think I could sort of get by with my Spanish But I really began to understand how important it was to have an interpreter for me and for the family. Number seven, be aware of your own biases. You have them. It's just the way it is. You can't help not having formed opinions and interpretations of things because it is your own experience. You may not act with intent to harm, but ignorance of your biases can cause harm, shame, and pain. We just have to get over it that that happens and, again, not be defensive that we didn't mean to hurt anybody. The onus is on us to become aware of others. Number eight, both Christina and Karen shared that just reading books by Latinx authors can be a start to awareness and curiosity. And I think this is true really for any cultural understanding is to read the words from another's experience. So these were some suggestions. Christina loves The House on Mango Street. I love Like Water for Chocolate, and Karen recommended anything by Pablo Neruda, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, and I think Isabella Allende is brilliant. I hope that this has helped you look at things in a different way. You've heard some different voices from the BIPOC community, and again, it's time to sit up, take notice, know that our words matter, and get smarter. 
Thank you so much for joining me. I know that you want to do the very best by our children and the families who love them. And part of that is really beginning to build on those relationships because at the end of the day, it is everything. Take good care of yourselves and please join me next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. This podcast was made possible by the team at Streamlined Podcasts. Music was composed by Connor McHugh and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero.